Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. If we want to hit 1.5 degrees C, we've missed that. Sorry. Like, that's just that's just where it is. 1.5 C is dead. Long live 1.5 C. Without solar radiation management, without stratospheric aerosol injection or, or sunlight reflection, which honestly is the most ignored area in climate tech. But don't get me started on that. We could spend an hour on that. But 2C is actually quite plausible. And the world doesn't end at 1.6 or 2.1. So we have a shot. Now, I think it's instructive to look at what did happen with coal generation in the U.S. and in Europe, because it has plunged like Europe even faster than the U.S. But the U.S., I did the math right up until the start of COVID. We undid 28 years of coal growth in the U.S. in 11 years through primarily market forces and some regulation. The regulation was not a ban on coal. It wasn't a nationwide carbon tax. It wasn't a cap and trade program. It was a set of local and federal ordinances that had things like controls on sulfur emissions, private public partnerships to phase out a coal plant and build a gas plant or a solar and wind farm in its place and provide jobs. And coal is a dead man walking in the U.S. and it is in Europe, too. Even people thought, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, well, Europe was going to see coal demand soar. It didn't happen, to be honest. So I think we can substantially reduce the consumption of this. But I agree with Quincy. It's not going to happen just automatically. We're going to have to create policies that phase out dirty technologies, even as we use a combination of policy and innovation and better products and lower cost points to grow the new clean sector. People are not going to embrace clean energy if they see it as more expensive and worse for them. We have to provide a better product, but we can use some carrots and sticks to accelerate the turnover of the old technology, the replacement of the old technology with the new as that better product comes online. Quincy, Mez, welcome to, I think what I'll call a special edition of the Keep Cool podcast. It's great to have you both on. Usually I only have one guest, so I'm excited for a little bit more of a roundtable format. And I think we'll touch on all kinds of different topics ranging from mobility, electrification, energy in general, climate, climate tech. So I'm super juiced about this one. And, uh, Sometimes I dive right into the deep end, but given that there's three of us on the call today, why don't we take a moment and do some introductions? It's always interesting to trace how good folks like yourselves got to where you are today. So Quincy, why don't we start with you and then we'll go to Mess. I was an engineer at SpaceX for seven years, predominantly doing manufacturing engineering for the Starlink Constellation and spent about two years working on the Falcon 9 and Dragon programs and then founded Electric Era in 2020, where we're focused on bringing affordable, reliable, and ubiquitous fast charging to every street corner in America and and ultimately really solving the infrastructure gap that exists for mainstream media adoption. So excited to be here with you both today. Thanks so much. Mez, over to you. Nick, thanks for having me. Quincy, great to see you. I'm Mez. That's what people call me. My full name is Ramez Nam. I'm managing partner at planetary.vc, a climate tech investor. I started my career in software. I spent 13 years at Microsoft. I've got a computer science degree. And back in the late 2000s, 2009-ish, I had a sort of a cliche environmental awakening. Beautiful beach, falling in love with the ocean, wondering why the pollution was there. And uh, wrote what would be my third book, which was asking the question of, could we address challenges like climate, energy, food, and water with a growing population and you know feed and provide power for 10 billion people while saving the planet? And that led me to being a forecaster. I came out of tech, so I looked at what was happening in climate technologies. And what I found was something that looked a lot like Moore's Law. I saw the exponential price decline in solar. I wasn't the first to observe that. I helped popularize that in sort of a very naive way that turned out to still be a little pessimistic <laughs> relative to what's actually happened since then. Uh, and I spent I was uh, early at a place called Singularity University, and I've been the co-chair of energy and environment there, doing a lot of education and public speaking about these topics around the world. And I've been investing in the space since about 2014. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, we've got a nice convergence of some software background on your end, Mez, and all kinds of other background too, and then a lot of hardware perspective from you, Quincy, and obviously we all contain multitudes. I'm curious, and maybe we'll start with a focus on mobility specifically, and we'll broaden from there. But given that that's what you're keenly focused on, Quincy, 
I'm curious to just pose this question as you think about, you know, we're sitting here at the end of January in 2024, so that's gone kind of quickly. It's kind of scary that we're already a month into the year. But when you think about the year as a whole, what would you say is probably like the biggest story in mobility and electrification that you're tracking this year? Yeah, I mean, I think at the top of everybody's mind is like, what is that mobility going to look like over the long term? I think in the news right now in January 2024, there's a lot of narrative around slowing EV adoption rates and challenges with ownership of electric vehicles. And I think that's going to be a story that plays out this year, mainly in the headlines of Tesla. Tesla's like the big thousand, five thousand, ten thousand pound elephant in the room on that front. And there's, you know, a huge amount of discussion around what their product demand looks like and to a smaller degree, Rivian's as well. And I think to cut through the noise on that, I mean, just briefly, the year-over-year growth rates are actually quite steady and perhaps even in excess of what people thought they were going to be. So to establish the baseline and set the table properly, I think that's actually important to note. And and then secondly, to note why. And I think the why is that EVs, from a consumer standpoint, are a superior automotive product. They are not just good for the environment, which obviously we all care about, but they're also just amazing high performance, low total cost of ownership products that are absolutely a blast to drive. I I drive a Tesla Model 3 performance edition and it's like literally driving a rocket ship where I pay a fraction of the cost for electricity. I have near zero maintenance and I use the technology to drive me back and forth from Portland where I visit my parents often. So it's honestly like stepping into the future from an automotive perspective. And I think that is frequently lost. And, you know, perhaps that's a good point of emphasis here as we talk about and as we start this conversation about e-mobility is just the relative merits of the product, which are many, many fold. Yeah, there's a couple things in there that I think are important that I'll, I'll double click on. For one, I think it's interesting to kind of concretize this idea of, you know, there's the actual data of what's happening and whether it be electric vehicle or plug-in hybrid electric vehicle sales. And then there's also, you know, narratives that a lot of folks are exposed to. We've definitely seen more articles of late across a variety of publications put with headlines such as like, you know, are EV sales in the U.S. slowing or why is this happening? When in reality, the underlying data, as you said, is, you know, EV sales in the U.S., China and Europe grow every year. China in many ways actually still leading both the U.S. and Europe. So sometimes there can be this dichotomy between what's actually happening on the ground and the narratives that are percolating and sort of metastasizing across media and the common knowledge. So that's a really important component of all these types of conversations is bringing people home to and cutting through the noise, as you said, to what's actually happening at a state or national or even local community level. And I think the second point you made is also excellent, which is there's a lot of different things we could point to with respect to why EVs are wonderful technology. I mean, at the most basic level with an ICE, you lose so much of energy to heat from the combustion engine. And that's fundamentally just not something that you have with an electric with an electric car. Mez, over to you. What did uh, Quincy's opening spark for you? Well, I think Quincy's dead on. Uh, these are just better products. I, I'm a Tesla driver as well, Tesla Model X. It is an amazing vehicle to drive. Tesla, both the, for the electric reasons, you have this incredible acceleration from moment zero and just the like sort of cockpit experience is, is superior. And I think people are starting to notice that. I'd, I'd also add for in-city driving, I never have to stop at a gas station. I use it like a phone, which is to say I do my stuff during the day and I just come home and plug it in every night and that's it. And it actually saves time and saves unexpected interruptions of your day from having to stop for gas. If I were to look more broadly, like what are the big stories right now? Again, as Quincy said, and as you alluded to, Nick, there's a narrative in the press of EV sales slowing. I don't actually know how important that is. I don't know how many people besides us energy geeks actually track all those stories as opposed to, you know, who's going to the Super Bowl or how many times does Taylor Swift get shown during Kansas City Chiefs games? I don't even yep. remember which one it is or what's happening in Gaza and, and Israel, right? But the narrative is out there. Just to quantify what Quincy's saying, look, the IEA, International Energy Agency, every year, essentially, since like 2015, they have upped their forecast of how fast electric vehicles will arise. And looking right now at an analysis of their 2021 outlook versus their 2023 outlook, their 2023 outlook basically doubles the pace of electric vehicle adoption versus what they thought two years ago. The 
U.S. Energy Information Administration, part of the Department of Energy, their 2018 forecast said there would be 20,000 electric vehicles with a 200-mile range on U.S. roads by 2040. We sell that many EVs with that range every couple of weeks in the U.S. So whatever, like deployment rates for all technologies fluctuate a bit year from year. Nevertheless, this looks like we're on an S-curve, right? It looks like we're hitting the exponential a bit of it. There might be a little bit of a slowdown now. If I were to add, you know, what are the big picture stories? I try to look upstream, like what's not necessarily what's hitting consumers right now, but what are the things that are going to keep driving future trends? I would say the continued plunge in cost of batteries. And there's two factors there. One is with this enormous lithium price spike, lithium mines were having hard time keeping up with lithium battery manufacturing plants, and the cost of lithium has has plunged back down. You know, the, the cure for high prices is high prices. And two, we had this new thing coming online, which I didn't really expect to be here at this point, which is sodium ion batteries. And so it looks like, you know, a few years ago, I forecast that by 2030, we'd have batteries at about 40 bucks a kilowatt hour. The people talk about $100 a kilowatt hour as the break-even price, where the purchase price of an EV is similar to gasoline. People thought that was a bit aggressive. I think Bloomberg thought 60 bucks. I think we're on track for something like 40 bucks now. And that the crossover point of electric vehicles in purchase price just being cheaper than gasoline vehicles is kind of starting to happen now. It, it, it happens over a span of several years based on the exact model and your needs. But between now and you know the next three, four years, we're achieving that crossover. And so then I'll add the second point, because that crossover, we're talking about like American and European prices. But the second point that I think is going to be an enormous deal down the road is the rise of China as an auto exporter, an auto manufacturing hub. They've never been an exporter before. China just passed Japan as an auto exporter. And China is also the BYD, a Chinese company, just passed Tesla for total EV sales or annual, I think it was quarterly actually, EV sales. And we have Chinese models that look kind of acceptable to me, at least from the specs, that are, you know, $15,000, $20,000. So there is a wave coming. It's going to, they're going to export to Southeast Asia, Europe, and so on before they try to export to the U.S. for a variety of reasons. It'll be a little bit harder than to export to the U.S. But the EVs are not just a better product from a consumer experience. They're a radically simpler product, right? The moving part count of an EV is less than a tenth the moving part count of a gasoline-powered vehicle. You can manufacture them with, Ford said, you can manufacture them with half the factory floor space, half the factory capex, and a third less labor, 80% less labor for the engine and drivetrain. So that means that at scale with cheap batteries, these things are just going to win on cost. And that's not even getting into the lower energy costs and so on. So to me, those are, are big stories that better product and wow, we're just passing this or about to enter this wave of crossovers in terms of cost, where if you are just shopping, you're gonna be like, wow, the EV is better and cheaper. Yeah, I mean, even tying both of some the bigger points that you brought up, Mez, together, I think, you know, BYD has said that as early as this year, they might actually start producing vehicles with a sodium ion battery. And they recently broke ground on a massive sodium ion battery, sodium ion battery manufacturing plant in China. So a lot of that might be, again, a little bit later than 2024 and how it trickles into actual vehicles on the road. But I think that is another example of something that happened a lot faster than people would have anticipated three or four years ago in terms of battery chemistry. And there's also a lot of environmental benefit to that too. You know, a lot of the EV naysayers will often point at lithium or more specifically even cobalt as, you know, these things still have, you know, of course still have an environmental impact. And Cobalt is its own story because a lot of manufacturers are being very cognizant of trying to use less of that in even lithium-based batteries. But yeah, that's a, definitely an interesting story to me to track is I think, you know, there'll be multi-chemistry EVs on roads within a few years, and that's pretty striking to me. I think like the early part of, or I would say like the 2010s and the early part of the 2020s were all about building up latent energy in the manufacturing and supply chain base for a variety of different electrification technologies. Solar probably, you know, built up that latent energy about a decade earlier. And then you saw this dra dramatic decrease in the, the dollar per watt of installed solar. And, and 
as Mez just noted, we're now seeing that with the dollar per kilowatt hour price for battery packs. And uh, as he also noted, I think just to summarize it, it's just a fun, it's fundamentally a technology with a much lower price floor. So, you know, the raw material that goes into making a product that can move people and goods is just going to be drastically lower. I think as we look to China's continued involvement in exportation of cars to other parts of the world, that trend's just going to accelerate because as we've seen time and time again from China, they're excellent at drastically improving the manufacturing capabilities and reducing the cost of a multitude of different products, whether it's phone, solar, now EVs. So that's, I think, an incredibly exciting trend. And and I, th- I think to like speak to the future, there's a great book that I would recommend folks read called How Innovation Works. It's written by an author called Matt Ridley. It basically talks about like what the requirements are to facilitate innovation in an economy and then how that innovation plays out in, a, in an open marketplace. And I think the thing that stood out to me in the book the most was just that a product wins by its pure performance merits. And I know we talked about this briefly, but just to touch on this again, what history has shown and is well, what is well documented in that book is that time and time again, if a product had better reliability, better usability, and a lower cost point, it 99 times out of 100 was the dominant technology and won, and won the adoption process. And, you know, from a pure technology point of view and an engineering point of view, the automotive product that is EVs has all of those features built into it. It has a lower price point, a lower asymptotic price curve, rather. It has far better reliability, a much lower complexity design, far few moving parts. It has lower energy costs and total cost of ownership. And it provides for an experience that is just more practical for your day-to-day driving habits where you don't have to stop at a gas station if you don't want to, and you can fill up at your house for very, very affordable rates. So, you know, just like with solar, and I think broadening the conversation here for a minute, just like solar is winning because it provides a superior price point because the energy input costs are free because they come from the sun, electric vehicles are, are, are also winning. So solar won the energy battles. And then my prediction, obviously, uh, is why I'm investing my career in this, is that electric vehicles will win the automotive battles. I very much agree. I think it's, it's um, if climate change didn't exist, EVs would still win. It would just take longer. It would have taken longer than to get to this point. But with a lot of these technologies, like solar and like EVs, what happened is early on, the tech was very expensive. Government subsidies helped scale it. That got it to where it's cost competitive or now potentially disruptively priced. And now market momentum will just carry it. Now, that that doesn't mean that we should drop all policies, but these things are so competitive that they are just going to win on quality and cost. But we need to move faster. So there's still a role for policy in that as well. Yeah. And the the third kind of pillar that I would add as we start to broaden is another thing that's very compelling to me is the manner in which, you know, in many ways, demand for electric vehicles and the increase in manufacturing capacity, and some of that's coming back on shore for batteries that that's sort of instilled, is also driving a pretty significant trend on the grid now where battery energy storage is also starting to win with respect to, you know, how folks think about reshaping the grid. It's not that, you know, things like transmission and batteries are inherently in conflict, but I think because of how difficult it's been to build transmission lines in the U.S. for the past, you know, decades, and because how relatively easy it is to add battery energy storage to the grid, that's another big trend that we're seeing now is this battery energy storage is skyrocketing in markets like California and Texas. And in many ways, it's, you know, that's still a Tesla story. You know, Tesla Megapacks were some of the first systems deployed in California in 2015 when some of the first battery energy storage projects came online. And they're still very much a quint, like kind of core battery energy storage technology that gets deployed in new projects in 2024. So that's exciting to me too, is like these aren't necessarily always just EV companies. They're really energy storage companies in some cases. Yeah, Nick, you asked at the beginning of the conversation, what's the story of the year going to be? And we had a variety of different inputs. I think if the question was reframed as what's going to be the story of the decade or the next several decades, I think it would be the the massive overhaul that needs to occur to all electricity grids are all across the globe. What do I mean by that? Well, I guess it's what I mean is in the definition or is in the is implied by the name of our company, Electric Era. The reason I named the company Electric Era is because we're entering into a, an era where electric products across 
the entire industrial landscape are being developed using electrical systems that ultimately yield higher performance, lower cost products to end consumers. So induction stoves are a good example of this. Electric vehicles are great examples of this. Heat pumps are great examples of this. What that translates into, though, is a a approximately a tripling of total electrical load growth in expected by 2050. So this this has been well documented by a number of people, and in my opinion, is is an awesome opportunity for reinvestment in in the American economy and investment in local economies across the world. I think you highlighted an interesting point about how Tesla battery pack sales are skyrocketing. That's true for for many different energy companies. Powin Energy is a company in Portland, Oregon, that's kind of seeing those massive spikes in grid-tied battery energy systems as well. And the reason is because grid operators are trying to balance load and they're trying to prepare and bring resiliency into their local grids as they ready for that tripling of net electrical load put through the grid by 2050. So, you know, again, that's, in my opinion, the kind of underlining current that many different technology companies, including Electric Air, are riding right now. And something I'm personally very excited about help solving because it's a must have if we want to, you know, decarbonize transportation and other sectors, or, you know, as we talked about earlier, just drive better products like electric vehicles. We need more ability to carry load through the electrical grid. So this is a major macro trend and super important. So I hope people are aware of that. You know, there's all kinds of other things we could tie into it too. I know lots of folks like to talk about AI and data centers and stuff like that in the current moment, and that will add a lot of load. But, you know, even if you like kind of think about developing economies, something as basic as air conditioning, demand for that, especially as, you know, the world gets warmer on average, demand for that's just going to go through the roof out to 2052. Totally. If you do the math just for the U.S., if you look at in the U.S., if we electrify all ground transport, that is nearly a doubling of electricity consumption. If you electrify all ground transport and electrify all building heat, that's, you know, coming a little bit less than tripling of total electricity consumption. And so that those are the numbers that Quincy's talking about. Like this is a very big deal. And, you know, I will, I think when you talk about the grid, you can, you can incorporate a lot of things in the grid. But I think it's worth separating sort of the poles and wires from other assets we put on, generating assets, storage assets, demand assets. And something that most people, lay people who think about renewables don't realize is renewables and the clean energy economy in general, including EVs, have more dependency on the grid than fossil sources, right? People think, oh, solar is going to make me energy independent, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, if you live in southwestern Arizona, you can do batteries and solar, or Australia. Australia, you model out the entire subcontinent of Australia, and you five hours of energy storage, you can, like, power the whole thing. Most places are not like that. And so we need uh, more grid build-out poles and wires. We talk about transmission. That means the trunk of the system, the long haul and higher power capacity lines. That's a bottleneck. And then distribution, you know, the last mile, the last five miles, where you plug in your EV charging or how you connect to a home or how you plug in a solar power plant. That's another bottleneck itself. So I think it's interesting to think about, like, in all scenarios, we need more grid build out except maybe scenarios with micro nukes that you can distribute everywhere. Any other scenario, you need a lot more good build-out. But the building out poles and wires turns out to have incredible regulatory burdens. It's really, really hard to get permission and to go through a thicket of local level, state level, federal level, and monopoly utilities trying to block you to actually build a transmission in particular. And even for building distribution, and I would love for Quincy to opine on this in a sec, you know, getting the power connection for a multi-vehicle high-speed EV charging site for passenger vehicles, let alone for electric semis in the future, those look like the connections for large factories or small towns. And those are things that grid operators are used to building out with a planning cycle of five, seven, ten years. So in a way, the role of energy storage, or one role of energy storage in the grid is, Quincy said this, that is you can just, and you, you said it as well, Nick, you can just deploy batteries faster than you can get permission to build out the grid. That doesn't mean that we don't need to build out the grid, 
but it means you can be more nimble and you can solve a lot of the grid problems. You can also use the grid more efficiently because people don't think about this, but the power lines that go by your house are not always fully loaded, right? We have to build out the power line capacity for those peak demand moments for when people are drawing the most. But in the middle of the night, you know, at 4 a.m., those power lines are not completely unused, but they might be running at 50% utilization or 40% utilization or less. And so with batteries at the edge of the grid, you can say, oh, okay, well, at times when the grid is not, doesn't have high stress on it, I'm going to use those times to fill up a battery so that when the peak demand comes, I don't have to draw on those power lines and strain them or build out new ones as well. And that's really where what Quincy and Electric Air are doing, I think, is, is super relevant and helps us move faster. Yeah, I think a, a good mental shortcut for the listeners is to kind of think about it between the difference of building like a custom skyscraper, like almost that level of complexity and permitting required to build a new substation is required to build a new substation or to a smaller degree, like a brand new home is what's required to almost install, you know, local distribution lines or upgrade those lines and install the transformers on site that's required to deliver, you know, a thousand homes worth of power to, in an individual public fast charging station. So that's kind of one trajectory, which is the status quo. And then, as Mez said, there's an emerging trend of using storage to defer that or augment that approach, which is the equivalent of like a, an automotive production line where you can just kind of hammer out batteries quickly at scale with predictable systems and precision manufacturing processes. And in doing so, tap into really attractive economies of scale. So it's, I think like the difference between building you know, the present day version of building the grid is like building homes and versus like a storage based approach. It's like an automotive factory. And obviously that type of solution and, and others are going to be required if we want to kind of gracefully grow the load that's being distributed through the electrical grid by 3x over the next several decades. The traditional approach, while Mez said it well, needs to go in conjunction with this. It, it I think, is best going to be optimized if it um, is complemented by best integrated solutions and approaches to a variety of different technologies. But in our case, EV fast charging stations, we use an on-site battery energy system and advanced software controls to approximately lower the demand from the grid by about a factor of 3x. That means we can essentially push approximately the same amount of energy through and to service the, the cars that show up, but with a 3x less investment in deployed infrastructure. Backtracking for a second, I, I think one other kind of new surprising area that's emerged to me recently that's going to translate to new load growth is actually advanced humanoid robotics, which is a pretty novel field. I, I think everybody's seen the Tesla Optimus video folding a t-shirt. I don't know well, if everyone's seen it, but some of us <laughs> have, and I'll put it, I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> okay. So if you haven't seen it, check out the show notes. That is a note is uh, a teleoperated bot, but the broader point is that humanoid robotics will commoditize labor and they're going to be built at scale by a variety of different companies, including Agility, which is a, an Oregon-based company in Tesla, who's building the Optimus bot. And what's surprising, I guess, and exciting is that those powertrain systems are going to be electrical. So they're going to consume about as much power as a car on average in a given day. So I know some folks on the Tesla team and have talked to them about this, and they're sizing for like a 90% duty cycle. And that translates to about 10 kilowatt hours of net draw per day which is literally the amount a car drives on average in America. So if that takes off, which I suspect it will, that's going to be maybe another doubling of the grid approximately, depending on how many are produced. So super exciting, but again, another big challenge for energy nerds everywhere. Yeah. This is one place where I'll disagree. And, you know, I'm not normally thought of as a pessimist or a curmudgeon, but I I'm dubious on the, the humanoid robotics, to be totally <laughs> honest. Uh, there's no real way to short that sector, but if I could, I would. But that doesn't erase any of the demand for the demand growth for electricity is still enormous. And so data centers, as you mentioned as well, Nick, and, and if these robotics come on, another way to think about it is we're going to electrify manufacturing, whether that's the current type of factory robots that we have, or the fact that we're going to probably electrify making steel, or whether we do it via direct electrical processes or via turning electricity into hydrogen by splitting water and using that to make steel. There's a whole lot of industrial stuff whether it's robots or something else, that today is, I don't know, I think the last number I looked at is 21%, 22% of global emissions, about a third of energy use is industrial energy. 
And so that stuff we don't tend to think about because it's out of sight, out of mind for most of us that don't work in factories or steel. That's going to electrify as well. And that's another enormous chunk. I'd be curious at this stage to maybe pick both of your your brains on really like the generation side of this, because that's sort of we've talked about solar a bit, but we haven't talked a massive amount about, you know, what technologies are really going to win on the generation front as we talk about all these things in terms of load growth. And obviously, there's a lot of spatial variability, as you alluded to, Mez, like what works in Arizona or Australia might look very different than what works in Germany or Japan or China, or I was just in Brazil for 10 days. And they already have actually a reasonably clean grid from a lot of kind of legacy hydropower assets that they've built. But there's certainly a question of how much more of that capacity you can build. So, you know, zooming all the way out, I'd be curious what kind of broader trends we're all seeing on the generation front, because, you know, I think for listeners, it's also good context that while variable renewables like solar and wind have grown a lot massively, and the technologies are improving massively over the last few decades, you know, in a sense, we're still sitting at a point where last year, coal demand production, seaborne volumes was at an all-time high. So hopefully inflection points are coming soon. We haven't quite hit the mark yet where there's really meaningful global emissions reductions in generation. It's certainly happened in certain countries. But yeah, with that set up, I'll pause. And maybe we'll start with you, Mez. I'd be curious what you're seeing on the generation front that's uh, salient to you. I could take a swing at that. So let me just give like what's happened and then what I see coming forward and the open questions. So what's happened is like coal specifically, the US and Europe have dramatically reduced coal consumption and we've replaced it by a mix of gas and renewables. Through the early years in the U.S., you know, starting in like 2008 is when the shale boom started. It was really gas generation that was taking share from coal. By 2020, it was about half and half. And now the growth is primarily renewables, but gas is still part of it. Europe has its different dynamics, but I mean, the U.K. is down to coal consumption that is similar to what it was in the 1870s. But the global coal consumption has been on a plateau since about that same time, since like 2011. It's hit like a slightly higher peak and it may grow a little bit more, actually. I thought it would actually peak and decline, but it's, it growth has stagnated. It's really China and India and a little bit of Southeast Asia uh, driving it. What happens globally, again, it's going to vary based on geography. Some geographies are really amenable to solar. Some geographies are not. Uh, the dynamics that I see on renewables are Solar is just going to be the cheapest electrons that you can buy, period. But solar has the problem of the day-night cycle. We're going to solve that. Batteries are going to get cheap enough. It has the big problem of seasonality. It has the problem of winter and of, you know, winter periods, especially if you're far from the equator. So solar will be the cheapest electron you can buy, even in a place like Germany, which has the sunlight of Alaska. Solar electrons are probably still going to be the cheapest. But... In January, your solar farm will produce one-fifth as much energy as it did in June. And then you get into the questions of land use. So solar and wind are highly complementary. Wind peaks in spring and is pretty high in winter. Solar peaks in summer and is lowest in winter. Put them together on a grid, you get a pretty robust combination, but you run into challenges of land use, permitting, and transmission. The optimal way, if you just ignored zoning in the U.S., if you wanted to build the optimal grid, you could run it almost entirely off of solar and wind and existing hydro and some storage by doing a lot of solar in the southwest and a lot of wind in the Great Plains and a big grid that sends it out to the coasts. Uh, And you'd still need, there'd still be some hours, particular weather events and so on, that you'd need some other generation sources, but those things would dominate. If you can't build a big grid, you run into more challenging problems. And the U.S. is easier than Europe. Europe sits at a a higher latitude than the U.S., further from the equator. So that means its summers are are longer, have longer days than much of the U.S., but its winters are colder and darker and shorter days. So that means that Europe has more dependency on potentially wind than the U.S., and Europe has about twice the population density of the U.S. So it makes it proportionally harder to build more renewables. It's a rough rule of thumb. The permitting difficulty of building something is, you know, roughly proportional to the population density of the area. It doesn't always hold, but that's a good way to think about it. So 
no matter how you look at it, there's a you know big set of variables here, knobs you can turn of what do you think will happen with permitting in the future? What do you think will happen with transmission in the future? But at the end of the day, you say solar and to some extent wind are going to win on cost, but they're not going to fulfill your demand every hour of the year. Again, the day-night cycle doesn't worry me so much. It's winter and long winter wind lulls. You can have 10 days in the UK where you just don't have any wind in January when your solar production is one-fifth, one-sixth, one-seventh of what it was in June. So how do you power those? And that's where, you know, Jesse Jenkins coined the phrase clean firm power, everything from nuclear fission as it exists today, uh, nuclear fusion, we're going to crack that. that, that's coming. Will it be cheap? Open question. Geothermal anywhere. Startups like Ever and Quaze and Fervo here in the U.S. working on expanding geothermal energy to more geographies. Today, you can basically only do geothermal where you can get close to the crust or close to the magma, but we could open that up with a combination of three different technological approaches there. Things like space-based solar, high in the sky today, could actually work, or what we think of as ultra-long-duration energy storage. People talk about LDES, long-duration energy storage, but that means anything from like 10 hours to days or weeks. There's a very, very large range there. And so there's an open question of, will we have economical energy storage at the level of a week or two weeks? And that changes a lot of things. So to simplify that, I think I'd say we're on this S-curve of renewables going up. It's pretty clear they're going to win on cost and they're going to take a big chunk of grid power. We don't know how big the chunk that they won't take is. Maybe it's 10%, maybe it's a third, maybe it's half. And for that, we need more shots on gold rather than fewer. So while I'm a huge renewables optimist, like, yeah, let's go on small modular reactor fission. Let's go on fusion. Let's go on geothermal everywhere. Let's go on even crazier ideas. You guys better to have too many tools in the toolkit than too few. Yeah, I'm always energized by the fact that there are fundamentally folks taking swings on whether it's different advanced nuclear fission, lots of folks in the U.S. and also abroad working really hard on fusion. And I, I kind of agree with you there, Maz. I think that's actually going to surprise people in the same way that any of the existing clean energy technologies that are scaling today has surprised people. Like Maybe it won't be 2030, but I actually really don't think we're that far away from some smaller scale commercial demonstrations of fusion. If you think about Helion up in Seattle with you, Quincy, they've you know gone so far as to put a stake in the ground and say that they're going to work with Nucor on a demonstration with a steel facility by 2030. So fingers crossed for them. Maybe it'll be someone else. Who knows? But yeah, it's like we talk so much about solar and wind as we should. And there are countless great teams working on things that don't get perhaps as much attention as they should, but hopefully will soon. <laughs> yeah, with Helion, they also signed a, um, a power purchasing agreement with Microsoft as well, I think for 2026, which it seems very, very close. Uh, so we'll see if they do that. But hey, I mean, that would be an amazing breakthrough. I mean, they have a, an, an outstanding team. Actually, a lot of former SpaceX colleagues I know have gone on to work there. The only thing I'd add to what Mez said is is uh, the usage of HVDC cables to kind of spread where clean power is generated to where it is used. I think that's a, another technology I that I haven't kept as close an eye on. I know that HVDC lines exist, but I'd love to see them exist at scale. And you, let's say you ask the question, like, what's the platonic ideal energy system that is minimal cost and provides ubiquitous, low, clean, you know, low cost energy around the world? I think it would be made up of, you know, solar, which is on a commoditization path, a decreasing price, path, price point path, batteries to store that solar energy which need to be deployed at, deployed at sufficient scale to solve some of the day-night cycle problems and seasonality problems that Mez just mentioned. And then as a component of that, HVDC cables almost deployed like a spider web around the world to kind of help branch out the points of generation to points of usage. One of the things that I started getting me interested in clean energy back in 2018 was actually the idea of using an HVDC cable to shift load from generation points in Hawaii to consumption points in California and basically time offset that load. I think that would be pretty interesting, almost like having a belt around the equator and shifting load east as nighttime falls and price points spike. And now that's not to say that all the shots on gold don't make sense. I just think that 
if you theoretically could wave a magic wand and solve the intimate domain issues and permitting issues, that would be, you know, a semblance of the kind of platonic ideal system design. I think to agree with Bez, I think Fusion is going to be huge. I think I mentioned this to you, Nick, as well back in the past, but I think Fusion is also going to be very useful for terrestrial nucleosynthesis, basically fusing materials to form extremely rare and expensive materials in fusion reactors. I think that's decades away, perhaps, but going to be a, a really interesting problem and solution that will create massive prosperity on Earth. So I, I don't know, a lot, lot to unpack there, but in general, I think maybe one thing to leave the audience with is that historically, with new energy sources coming online, the previous energy source doesn't really diminish all that much. Like people still burn a ton of wood, you know, even after the onset of coal. And then after the onset of natural gas, people still burnt a bunch of coal. Same thing with nuclear. So, but I think to set expectations properly, people should be thinking about, unless we, you know, have like a production board type system to solve the climate change issue more intensely, is that there's going to be a lot of emissions. And and that's not great, obviously, for decarbonization purposes, but has historically been the case. So we either need to, you know, drastically solve these problems with more urgency, ban them, which I don't necessarily think is the right idea, or just win on price, which I think is the right approach that will probably result in the best total outcome for society because it'll be driven by the free market. And that's why, you know, we're so focused on decreasing the cost of EV fast charging station deployments and battery energy systems, et cetera. I've got some thoughts on that. I mean, that's, that's sort of a Vaclav Smeal line, but I think Smeal is, in the important ways, he's largely wrong on that, or he can be. I don't think, we're not moving fast enough on climate. Like, if we want to hit 1.5 degrees C, we've missed that. Sorry. Like, that's just, that's just where it is. 1.5 C is dead. Long live 1.5 C. Without solar radiation management, without stratospheric aerosol injection or, or sunlight reflection, which honestly is the most ignored area in climate tech. But don't get me started on that. We could spend an hour on that. But 2C is actually quite plausible. And the world doesn't end at 1.6 or at 2.1. So we have a shot. Now, I think it's instructive to look at what did happen with coal generation in the U.S. and in Europe, because it has plunged, like Europe, even faster than the U.S. But the U.S., I did the math right up until the start of COVID, we undid 28 years of coal growth in the U.S. in 11 years through primarily market forces and some regulation. The regulation was not a ban on coal. It wasn't a nationwide carbon tax. It wasn't a cap and trade program. It was a set of local and federal ordinances that had things like controls on sulfur emissions, private public partnerships to phase out a coal plant and build a gas plant or a solar and wind farm in its place and provide jobs to people who work there. Uh, the Sierra Club's efforts in this place funded by Bloomberg, actually. So we used policy tools and economics at the same time and a better technology, both gas and renewables and batteries as better technologies to help achieve that. And coal is a dead man walking in the U.S. and it is in Europe, too. Even people thought, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, well, Europe was going to see coal demand soar. It didn't happen, to be honest. So I think we can substantially reduce the consumption of this, but I agree with Quincy, it's not going to happen just automatically. We're going to have to create policies that phase out dirty technologies, even as we use a combination of policy and innovation and better products and lower cost points to grow the new clean sector. People are not going to embrace clean energy if they see it as more expensive and worse for them. We have to provide a better product, but we can use some carrots and sticks to accelerate the turnover of the old technology, the replacement of the old technology with the new as that better product comes online. Well, I'll just quickly just tie it back to the beginning of the conversation, Quincy, where you talked about, you know, the electric vehicle that you drive just being a better product. I think at the end of the day, that's the type of stuff we got to get folks excited about. Like if I were, I live in New York City, so this isn't happening anytime soon, but if I was going to build a new home from scratch, like I would be fundamentally stoked and thrilled to be like, all right, I'm going to get my solar array. I'm going to get my battery. I'm going to get my bi-directional electric vehicle. And, you know, even just like the project itself would be incredibly fun and exciting to put together. And then just like tracking the cost of my electricity and how long I can go without pulling from the grid. Like all that stuff would just be incredibly fun to me. But I know you wanted to jump in. So yeah, no, I think I just couldn't agree more with both points. And 
when we say better product as technologists and entrepreneurs, we're really saying like in the absence of subsidies, it should be superior, period, full story and, and stop. And I think EB's accomplished that. I think heat pumps accomplished that and other aspects as well, but it should be so immediately obvious to the end consumer and cause like such limbic resonance that it just is an inevitability that they get solved. And, and fundamentally, electric platforms and powertrains in the EV world just and, uh, create that outcome. So I think like really hammering on the point that it needs to be more affordable, more reliable, more practical, and just have a, an enhanced product feature set and product capability is what every kind of technologist or policymaker even should be thinking about when kind of backing certain technology types. But I agreed not to disagree at all with Mez's point. It definitely has to be sticks and carrots. So excited about doing that work in the e-mobility space and seeing it play out in a variety of other parts of the economy. To kind of broaden even more at the end here, we've talked a lot about power sector, energy, mobility. Obviously, we've touched a little bit on industry as well. There are many kind of sectors that comprise the global economy, all of which impact climate change, global warming, and even other global challenges like air pollution in distinct ways. I'd be curious for y'all's take, and I'm happy to provide mine, on whether it's in, say, agriculture or some other sector, trends or technologies that we haven't discussed yet that you're also excited about or interested in in 2024 looking forward because so much of global warming is ultimately not just about power sector or transportation. You know, for my part, I'm really keenly interested in methane in 2024. The EPA has proposed new kind of stick regulations for oil producers to reduce fugitive methane emissions and leaks with an actual kind of penalty, dollar penalty on tons of methane that they emit into the atmosphere, which drives global warming much more quickly than carbon dioxide does pound for pound. So, you know, that's an example of I'm always keenly tracking companies that are, whether it's measurement from a satellite of methane leaks or an actual technology to then go plug leaks or kind of predictive technologies around where infrastructure might leak methane. All that stuff's very compelling to me and kind of sits I mean, that sort of still sits in power sector, but isn't something that we'd hit on. But I'm curious for all of y'all's perspective beyond power sector and, and mobility here in closing. Mez, do you want to kick it off? Sure. I'll, I'll say, I'll talk about three things that are range from probably look too pragmatic to too crazy. So you divide the global emissions pie into like four subparts of the pie. And this is a gross infrastructure About a quarter power, a quarter transport, transport's actually a bit smaller, and a quarter industry and heat. And then the last quarter is agriculture and deforestation and land use change. And we've made the most progress on electricity, second most progress on mobility. We're going to make progress on heat, and there's a lot of efforts around industry. Ag and land use change are lagging badly. There's a lot, you know, techno-optimists, of which I am one, love to talk about plant-based foods, everything from, you know, plant-based proteins to cultured to you know, stem cell grown, et cetera, I am dubious that's going to make an impact. You just look at the macro trends, people's meat consumption just goes up and up and up. It's really hard with cell-based agriculture to beat the cost of a cow or a pig. And so on ag, I think this is going to be one where we're going to have to attack it because most ag emissions and most deforestation are related to animal agriculture and in particular cattle and pigs. And if you want to tackle that, I think it's going to be a whole bunch of focused efforts on subparts of that. And some of them are going to look really pragmatic. Raising crop yields so we can grow more corn in the same amount of land, so we can feed cows with less deforestation. Various techniques to stop manure piles from producing methane and nitrous oxide, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not one, this is one where I'm oddly not the sci-fi optimist. I'm not one that thinks we're going to fix this in a lab. I think we're going to fix this in a whole lot of traditional ag approaches. All right, going to the more sci-fi side, things that I'm excited about that I'm not sure are happening right now. When I look at the various tipping points related to climate, one that scares me a lot is the loss of tropical coral reefs. Basically, a, a number of studies have said that at 1.5 C, which we will cross in the, the 2030s, if not sooner, all shallow water coral reefs on Earth start to experience bleaching events more rapidly than they can recover from. And those are the rainforests of the sea, host for biodiversity, you know, quarter of all marine species we think 
are nursed on them. 800 million people depend on protein from the ocean, yada, yada, yada. Big stuff. And I'm a scuba diver and I think they're really pretty. I love them. Um, but you look at that and I'm starting to see more attention paid to what can we do to preserve coral reefs, to sample their DNA, to replant reefs that have been devastated, probiotics for reef uh, protection or recovery. In Australia, there's some stuff with cloud brightening that I'll come back to in a sec. And at XPRIZE, I'm an advisor at XPRIZE. I, I lead their, co-lead their panel on what we can do in climate energy. We've got a coral reef restoration prize to fund competitions and people figuring out what's the cheapest, fastest, most scalable way to restore coral reefs. We don't have a funder for that. So if you're a philanthropist listening to this and you want to help restore coral reefs around the world, hit me up. So that's one area that I think is has been one of the things that scares me most about climate change as far as near-term impact. And I'm starting to see some traction, at least in the public discourse and in people trying things. And the other one is sunlight reflection. There is basically no plausible way to stay below 1.5 C through decarbonization, nor through sucking carbon out of the air. It's just not, not that I can see. It's just not economically plausible. So if we take 1.5 C seriously, the only way that we can see to do it, in my book, is to reflect some tiny fraction, you know, a fraction of a percent of the sun's energy back into space. We can do that through the scary stuff of injecting aerosols into the stratosphere, Basically, what happens when a volcano goes off, or we can do it through sunlight, through cloud brightening. Sorry, to have tops of clouds reflect sunlight back into space. That has been verboten and anathema. And if you talked about it, it was the third rail of climate. Obviously, you were, Al Gore called me basically a fossil fuel company stooge for even suggesting <laughs> this. That was a fun conversation in public. But it's something that from a technical and just trajectory standpoint, we are under investing in massively. Put it another way, the world will spend, I don't know, almost $2 trillion on climate tech deployment this year. Total annual budget for research in sunlight reflection is on the order of $10 million. That's about one one hundred thousandth. So I'm a modest person. I think we should spend about a billion dollars, not nothing big, just a billion or so a year on researching sunlight reflection. I haven't had my way, but the dialogue is changing. We see things like the Overshoot Commission is basically an entity of, you know, eminent public individuals come from governments across the world and so on, talking about how to manage overshoot, and they're looking into this. We've seen sort of quiet funding go into government programs, like dropping the word geoengineering, just talking about stratospheric, atmospheric research. And we have seen some things in Australia with efforts to do uh, cloud brightening, particularly over the Great Barrier Reef, to see if you can get sort of a twofer of us protect this reef from a heat event that might have caused bleaching while at the same time learning more about how in a localized way, not a global way, to cool things down a little bit and help develop this technology. So that's one where it's fraught with dangers. It's, it's fraught, not with even technical dangers, it's fraught with sort of explosive disagreements. And nevertheless, we need to find a way to thread the needle and at least move forward on the science right. so we can have something in our toolkit that we can evaluate then, should we or should we not use it? Yeah, it's always interesting to me when folks are reticent to even research something. And we could probably talk about the implications of that for, as you said earlier, another hour or two. But I do think, you know, Mez, I think you're right that the conversation is shifting. You do see more folks sticking their neck out now and saying, hey, this is something that we should be thinking about and researching. One of my last podcasts with Albert Banger from USV, he's a pretty big proponent that there should be more kind of proverbial energy behind that. I've covered startups like Make Sunsets, where a lot of people have disagreements about their approach, but they're just going ahead and saying like, hey, we're going to do some of this out in the open world and try to at least kind of expand the conversation and get some real world kind of deployment data. But yeah, that's an interesting one to track in 2024. I do think that conversation has shifted meaningfully, even in the last 12 months alone. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a red flag to me when somebody starts calling you names just for trying to entertain a rational debate on a subject. And that's just not appropriate in general. So. I, and I think I think the problems that face humanity, climate change aside, are so multifaceted that rational debate is the simple thing that gets you to the right conclusion. So I'm a big believer in exploring an idea. And if it is the wrong idea, you'll quickly discover that. So I commend you as for pushing on that for so long. I'll just uh, briefly say, I mean, 
I think has covered the whole gambit incredibly well and impressed by how researched you are. So great job on that. I'll just briefly uh, add that, you know, so much of working climate or kind of monitoring climate is feels like being an ant on the back of a an elephant and you're you're just kind of holding on for dear life and you can't really, you know, make much headway on steering the elephant one way or the other. I think that's the experience, but I'll just briefly zoom out and say that, you know, we're living in a moment of time where technology across basically every sector is rapidly advancing to the point where I think solutions exist very clearly for many of these problems. And beyond just climate, I think society at large is rapidly innovating on everything from, you know, energy, intelligence, connectivity, labor, the space economy, which I I keep a very close eye on, to, you know, the cost of cogitation thinking has gone down drastically over the last century because calories are so much more efficient. So every year is like a drastically better time to be a human. And I think bringing a sense of optimism to our ability to control that elephant and an acknowledgement that there's actually an amazing amount of progress being done is is super important to kind of keep your head above the water. Because I think when you switch from optimism to pessimism, you start to shift to a mentality where things can't get done and then things won't get done. So I would say for all the audience and just anybody in general that you should realize there's an immense amount of things happening across all of the economy, across all technologies, and we're drastically shaping humanity into being like an incredible long-term species. And that's not to say there's a lot of problems that need to be solved. Like there clearly are, but we have the tools, we have the brains, we have the processes. Now we just need to do the work. Yeah. So if you're feeling pessimistic about climate, like go and do the work, install something, join a company, uh, you know, actually yeah. do physical labor to get things done. And through that process, we'll all make this problem go away over time or, or adjust to it in a way that we, that I think the majority of people can live in. Well said, Quincy. Well said. Yeah. It's a really good call to action. And I actually really like the ant analogy because I think you're right that experientially it can feel like we're this ant on the elephant's back. But if you think about like the ant as an animal species, it's an incredibly successful species. And what ants do really well is, you know, individually, they kind of bite off what they can chew, right? And so obviously, if it were any one person's task to navigate and solve the complexity of climate challenges, that would be intensely overwhelming. But what I think really resonated for me in your call to action, Quincy, is every one of us can take off a very bite-sized piece of a single challenge or perhaps multiple challenges individually. And there's no shortage of places where you can plug in and you can really take the time to kind of think through, you know, what's most compelling to me? What do I want to work on? You know, it doesn't have to be in the power sector. It doesn't have to be mobility. Perhaps, you know, someone listening is really passionate about plastic pollution and wants to think about, you know, even just weekend beach cleanup, like that moves the needle, even in a small way. And if everyone in the world kind of took it upon themselves, kind of tend their little piece of the global garden, then I have no doubt that we'll make a massive amount of progress. Well, we've already gone for an hour. I think we could probably do this every week and have an interesting discussion, but probably a good place to pause for today. Quincy already gave a great call to action. Mez, any other calls to action that you would want to add? And then, you know, for both of you, I'd also love to invite you to just put a quick plug in for where folks can follow along with your work, your thinking, or, you know, Quincy, in your case, it might also be people should go take a look at Electric Air's job board, all that good stuff. Um, but I won't put the cart before the horse. I think Quincy nailed it. You know, if you want to make the world better, get involved, go do something. There's lots of ways to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ramez or planetary.vc. Excellent. Um, yeah. And then I think generally we're hiring a lot of folks right now. Uh, our careers page is up to date. We're starting to really think about our V3 EV fast charging architecture. We're going to do a, a pretty interesting DC microgrid design with an integral battery. And there's a lot of work to do on that. So uh, we're hiring power electronics engineers and electrical engineers. And, you know, you, you're basically joining like a world-class team. So check out our careers page at electricairtechnologies.com or follow me on Twitter at Quincy Edmund, at Quincy Edmund Lee. Mez and Nick, it's been great to talk to you guys today. Thanks for having this. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much, gentlemen. I'm looking forward to the next one. We can schedule it for six months or a year and check in on some of our predictions or progress or what new wrinkles have presented themselves and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch in between. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in. 
So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon.